0: As I mentioned uh, this morning in our reflection we'll go on this evening exploring this third domain of, or third foundation of mindfulness mindfulness of the mind uh, in um, some more depth tonight. And beginning with a a quote it's uh, from a Zen teacher but I don't know who. Pain like pleasure, is inevitable, is an inevitable and a temporary part of living. Suffering, however, is optional. Some years ago I attended a meeting of Dharma teachers that included um, Dharma teachers from many or most of all of the various Buddhist lineages. And in one of our discussions, um, the question, what is Buddhism, came up. The Dalai Lama, who was one of our guests of honor at this meeting, said that often his response to this question is that Buddhism is about certain kinds of mental training to eliminate all kinds of negative or afflictive emotions and all traces of these emotions. And then he went on to define realization or liberation as the complete purification of afflictive emotions. This definition of realization, this definition of nibbana, being the complete purity of the mind, the heart, has been described as the mind and heart of an arahant. And in hearing His Holiness, uh, the Dalai Lama speak of this, there was the sense that he spoke from a very deep place of confidence in truly believing that this is possible. In the many times that I have uh, practiced with the very venerable uh, Sayadaw Upandita and with the very venerable Pawak Sayadaw, both of these teachers have spoken of this same possibility in similar ways uh, over and over again. And of course, the suttas in, uh, in, uh, in, in, the, in the suttas, the Buddha often speaks of this aspect of liberation, this aspect of freedom. He speaks of it in, in the same way. As our own confidence grows and deepens, we too begin to at least uh, to get at least some sense that this is our possibility. In its deepest sense, the basic aim of these teachings and practices isn't really about what we ordinarily uh, think of as having a happy life in this lifetime. And so, here you all are, making physical and mental effort in the service of the purification of the mind, the purification of the heart. Here in retreat, and in our life outside of a retreat setting, we come to know, we come to directly experience that through our practice, through our physical and our mental efforts, certain states of mind increase and others decrease. We begin to find out that at least to some degree we've let go of what's unwholesome. We've let go at least to some degree of what brings suffering, what's harmful to ourselves, and what's harmful to others. And we begin to find out that the wholesome states of mind and heart are more and more our experience, more and more readily available. And so our feeling of connection and confidence in these teachings and practices takes deeper root. Confidence in our own capacity to realize the teachings, to be successful in relationship to our practice in the immediacy of here and now grows, along with confidence in relationship to our deepest goals. And some words from the Buddha, from the Anguttara Nikaya: Abandon what is unwholesome, O bhikkhus. One can abandon the unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do so. If this abandoning of the unwholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to abandon it. But as the abandoning of the unwholesome brings benefit and happiness, therefore I say, abandon what is unwholesome. Cultivate what is wholesome, O bhikkhus. One can cultivate the wholesome. If it were not feasible, I would not ask you to do it. If this cultivation of the wholesome would bring harm and suffering, I would not ask you to cultivate it. But as the cultivation of the wholesome brings benefit, and happiness. Therefore, I say, cultivate what is wholesome." The extraordinary wisdom, metta, and compassion of the Buddha. The heart-mind of a Buddha sees only suffering and the end of suffering and encourages, exhorts those heading towards the end of suffering to really take care and to pay attention, rather than judging them or condemning them. And the heart, mind of a Buddha, in seeing those heading towards the end of suffering, rejoices for them. This approach to life, this way of seeing, can really be a great inspiration, inspiring feelings of self-confidence in us. It can be done. I can do it. Over the years of my own practice, there certainly uh, have been times when I've experienced various difficulties within myself in relationship to the teaching and the practice. But when I've been able to be really honest and humble about it with myself, I've seen that most of the time It's been because I was afraid that I wasn't really able or capable uh, of actualizing the teaching. And I've also found that when I've really been filled with confidence in relationship to myself, that my love and gratitude for the teachings, as well as for my own practice, has deepened and grown. The Venerable Powak says that we must always approach things with this attitude, the attitude that you can be successful. This is what the Buddha taught. He said, Powak said many times. Once in a practice meeting with him, um, I went in and I said, this is too hard. This is just too hard. And dear Pawak Sayadaw looked at me with great kindness in his eyes and a kind of light laughter and then he said simply said, no it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> and it's true. The suttas and the direct teachings of the Buddha are filled with this approach to practice. This evening we'll specifically explore a few of the difficult and afflictive states of mind that arise in our human experience. And also explore some of the ways that the Buddha encourages us to work with them in the light of purification, in the light of the Dalai Lama's definition of liberation of the mind, liberation of the heart. It's as though all of us have skeletons in the closet. And the Buddha wasn't excluded from this. When he left the palace as a young man, in search of freedom, in search of liberation from anguish and confusion, his search was grounded in finding liberation from his own experience of suffering. He wasn't looking for the truth of awakening from some idealistic or philosophical stance. So these these skeletons in the closet, the old and sometimes seemingly new, angers and fear and resistance and judgments, doubts, sadness, grief, longings, strong desires and attachments, confusions, pains, Etc., it's a long list, from our present life's experiences and carried on from many, many lifetimes' experiences. Some of these we certainly may have mindfully met and seen with an open heart and open mind. Some of them we've certainly ignored or hidden away. In our practice, we open to whatever arises, including those things that may have been kind of tucked away, these so-called skeletons in the closet. And it's very important to uh, understand that our practice is not about dredging up, not about digging up afflictive states of mind. Most of us, most all of us, need to discover the skeletons uh, in order to find a really true depth of happiness or we'll really continue just living in delusion, thinking that we can be happy but never really truly being so. Meditation allows us to open the closet and look into the boxes to uncover what may have been hidden or maybe that we've hidden from or maybe we've judged as unacceptable and buried away. The skeletons in the closet that we've been hauling around often unconsciously, often unwittingly maybe for a very long time. The uh, poet and translator Stephen Mitchell has a version of the myth of Sisyphus and this is this is what he said We tend to think of Sisyphus as a symbol of a tragic mortal hero condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock Sweatily up the mountain and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it sings to it. It has become the mysterious other He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, let the rock hurtle to the bottom, and go home. Practice gives us some very powerful tools The tools of mindfulness, concentration, investigation, metta, compassion, equanimity. Each of which help us to open to our experience from the clarity of a focused mind and the heart of kindness, acceptance and patience. Enabling us to really see clearly and to be able to go home. With mindfulness and concentration grounded in the kindness of a non-judgmental presence, our possibility is to realize that fear, anger, doubt, strong desire, attachment, sadness, shame, irritation, judgment, worry, expectation, disappointment, have no more control over us. And we begin to realize that the reactive habitual need maybe to analyze it over and over again or the habit of trying to get rid of or to fix it or trying to ignore it or maybe the habit of deluding ourselves that, um, with a seeming kind of equanimity. Oh, oh, this is really nothing. This is really nothing that kind of an attitude, we begin to realize that none of these habitual reactive patterns really serve us. And when we begin to meet and see these reactive patterns within the heart of kindness, the door to clear seeing, or seeing through, as I like to call it, is open the beginning of a healthy response rather than unconsciously dropping into old reactive patterns in relationship to afflictive emotions is born out of clearly connecting and a non-judgmental knowing that this is how it is in this present moment. We leave everything as it is. Our rooms with all of the boxes opened, and the skeletons uncovered. And we find that we can be present in this moment of life without the old habit of giving the past, be it a year ago, or five, or thirty, or forty, or years ago, or maybe just a few moments ago, without giving this continued power over us. This is our possibility. There's a saying that comes from the time of the Buddha, it says, rain soddens what is kept wrapped up, but never soddens what is open. Uncover then what is concealed, lest it be sodden by the rain. We can't really be free from something that we don't see or something that we ignore. The Sri Lankan monk Bhante Gunarantana in his book, Mindfulness in Plain English, said this, View all problems as challenges. Look upon negativities that arise as opportunities to learn and to grow. Don't run from them. Condemn yourself or bury your burden in saintly silence. You have a problem, he says. Great, he says. (laughs) More grist for the mill. Rejoice. Dive in. Investigate. And then I add, within the heart of kindness. And so we quietly sit and watch ourselves. All kinds of things come to the surface. Really the mind, or at least minds that aren't yet totally purified are primarily a set of mental habits, conditioned habitual ways of thinking and feeling. And to change, they must come to the surface and be acknowledged, accepted, and clearly seen. And it takes time. We really cannot hurry it. We simply resolve and persevere with patience, and the rest will take care of itself. And sometimes there's resistance and fear to this opening. Anxiety, tension, worry, and doubt are created by and manifest to the degree of the strength of our resistance. Resistance is rooted in fear, and it can be a vicious circle. And so we practice with great gentleness kindness and a deep patience for and with ourselves in through this process of opening to and relinquishing relinquishing our conditioned habits our habit patterns patterns of suffering we're relinquishing our addictions of mind the great indian teacher nisargadatta maharaj says Don't bully yourself. Violence will make you hard and rigid. Don't fight with what you take to be obstacles on your way. Just be interested in them. Watch them. Observe. Inquire. Let anything happen, good or bad. But don't let yourself be submerged by what happens. I'd like to take a bit of a look now um, at what maybe is the most subtle and yet one of the most deeply pervasive aspects of suffering in this life, which is so directly connected to the suffering we experience in relationship to difficult emotions, difficult emotional states of mind. And this is the suffering that's inherent in ignoring the truth that everything in this world, everything in this universe comes into being through the combination of a multitude of conditions. Everything is relative, related. One thing leads to another. Because of this, that. Everything is contingent. Consequently, it's conditional. Everything is in relationship. And in truth, in an infinitude of changing, relationships, including the arising of fear, anger, worry, sadness, judgment, doubt, strong desires, attachments, etc. And yet we so often believe that the opposite of of this truth is the reality of things. It's often taking our experiences and things as though they're quite solidly and singularly in place. And here to stay. Which will always, eventually, create suffering for ourselves and for others. And yet, we continue to grasp on to the past and project into the imaginary future solidifying both in our mind, and yet life just keeps rolling along, keeps flowing along. The good news is that an amazing thing about suffering itself is that it, too, is a conditional, totally relative, contingent aspect of life. It's not an absolute. Suffering is optional. Here in Taos during the midsummer and the early fall we have what we call our monsoon season and in this big open sky of Taos we often have huge arches of rainbows appearing, even double rainbows some of the time. A rainbow appears because of particular conditions coming together. Just the right amount of moisture in the atmosphere. The angle of the light, of course, being just right. And then one has to be in the right place and at the right time and looking in the right direction. And it all changes so quickly. Everything in life, including ourselves, Meaning all of our experiences of body, heart and mind are like a rainbow. The coming together of a changing set of conditions that are totally relative, related, contingent and conditional, and empty in and of themselves. And it's so obvious with rainbows, but not so for most of us with the more solidly appearing and often very sticky mental and physical phenomena. Our rainbow body, our rainbow mind, including emotional states, which for many of us can be the experiences that we most readily identify with and get stuck in. Thinking of things and experiences, the various states and moods of the mind as permanent, as unchanging, and identifying with any of these as me and mine and I will inevitably bring suffering. The degree to which we grasp, cling, and identify with our experience, whatever it is, pleasant or unpleasant, physical and mental experience, the degree to which we grasp, cling and identify with our experience, this is the degree with which we'll suffer. Our practice is about really, truly being in the present. This present moment. And this present moment. And this one. Ongoing, just as it is right now, and right now, and right now. It's not the present moment that causes suffering, it's the desire for it to last, or the desire for this moment to be different that causes us to suffer. Liberation isn't rooted in anything imaginary, pretended, hoped for, wished for, philosophized about, or avoided, or ignored. And we have this saying in English, ignorance is bliss. Well, ignorance is not bliss. In the clarity of the Buddhist teaching, ignorance is ignorance. And bliss is bliss. With ignorance, in fact, providing the very fertile ground that delusion needs in order to sprout. Delusion manifests as an unknowing because of the lack of penetration or the concealment of the real nature of things. With this delusion of unknowing, There's an absence of right or an absence of true understanding that's experienced as the mental blindness or the mental darkness of delusion, which is caused by a lack of careful and wise attention. This is really the root of all that's unwholesome. But fortunately, ignorance and delusion are only conditioned, impermanent, contingent states of suffering. Just two of the many hues of the ephemeral rainbow of our experience. So going on now with exploring a, a few specific hues of the rainbow of emotional states of mind. And we'll begin with fear. In our practice and in our life, outside of a formal practice setting, fear often appears in the guise of doubt, anxiety, worry, resistance, feelings such as well, I won't attend to, I I won't open to, I don't want to, or maybe I can't be, or I'm not sure I want to be with this experience, this unfamiliar new experience or this old familiar experience or this strong emotional state or maybe this pain in the body or this pleasurable experience. I can't be with this moment of life and maybe sometimes feeling frozen and or maybe caught or just simply unable to open and to receive the experience fully to receive it deeply within a mindful presence. From this perspective, fear can manifest outwardly in relationship to situations and in relationship to other people as judgment or blaming the critical mind. If we take it up, if we really believe it. It's his fault. It's because she, it's because they, it's because this place, it's because the weather. And this fear turned inward can manifest as self-judgment, self-blaming, self-doubt, self-criticism, maybe feelings of unworthiness, not being good enough, or just not being enough, not doing it right, not being able to do it right. Our practice, our life, our self, not being right, not being perfect, whatever that might mean to each of us. And really all of this is rooted in fear. I'd like to offer you another approach to perfection, which is probably different from how most of us have been conditioned to think of what it means to be a perfect person. This comes from the Taoist master Chang Tzu, his definition of perfection. The mind of a perfect person is like a mirror. It grasps nothing. It expects nothing. It reflects but doesn't hold Therefore, the perfect person can act without effort. We may have a habit of getting caught up in identifying with the mind of judgment or doubt or blaming, criticism, inwardly in relationship to ourselves, or maybe outwardly in relationship to others. Which is actually often a way of distracting ourselves from the fear that's kind of lurking underneath. I think that often we're afraid of the fear, afraid to really look directly at it, especially if maybe we've taken a peek and we found that it hasn't been so easy. Years ago, one of my teachers told me when I came in for a practice meeting and fearfully reported the experience of fear. He said to me, fear is just fear. Well, when I heard this from him, my inward response, I did not say this out loud to him. I said, well, yeah, that's easy for you to say. Some, certainly, obviously, some degree of resistance and irritation in the thought. But what he said really stuck with me. And eventually I began to see, yes, fear is just fear. As we gently, open-heartedly persevere in our practice, rooted in mindfulness and kindness, in relationship to ourself, we begin to be able to meet, to receive fear, to come really close to it to look it in the eye and not be so bound, not be so imprisoned by it and not be shut off out of fear to the vastness of possibility. The 12th century Persian poet Hafiz says, Fear is the cheapest room in the house. I would like to see you living in better conditions. I agree with him. in our mind and heart, as our mind and heart gets stronger and our concentration and mindfulness and metta muscles develop, we can begin to acknowledge the presence of fear, accept it, and know that it really doesn't need to run our life. It's not who we are. It's not mine, it's not me. It's not I. I'm not a fearful person. Fear happens, yes. Fear happens because of a multitude of conditions coming together in this moment. It's not an independent, solid something. The arising of fear in this moment is totally dependent on many, many conditions, some of which we can see and know and many of which we don't know and may never see. It may be certainly a moment of a very intense experience. But when we begin to practice seeing clearly from this perspective, we begin to understand that it's not something solid or permanent, and it's clearly not me, it's not mine. And it's not, of course, that the energy of fear will never ever appear again. We learn to be steadfast. We learn to stand in the fear, lose the fear of fear itself. And we begin to see it clearly. We begin to see through it, like we see through the hues of a rainbow. A few years ago, I read an article in the National Geographic magazine about a woman named Garland a 40-year-old woman. She was the first woman to climb K2 in the Himalayas without any oxygen. And she was with a group, a small climbing group, Gerland and her husband Ralph, and I think there were a few other people, maybe three people more, I'm not sure exactly how many, but it was a small group. And in the article, there was a quote from both Ralph, her husband, and a quote from Gerland, about fear, their relationship to fear. And this is from Ralph, her husband. He, Ralph, relished how the sensation of fear in his stomach revealed the margins of his ability and compelled him to pay attention. And this is from Garland. Garland met fear with the quiet calm that possessed her when she was absorbed in what she had to do. When she kept herself completely focused on the task at hand she didn't feel afraid. Garland and one other of the group, not her husband but another one of their small climbing group, were the only two that reached the top of K2 in that climb without oxygen. And Garland was a practicing Buddhist and when she reached the top of K2 she took this little buddha she had in her backpack and placed it on the top of the mountain the buddha's teaching offers us the possibility of a different perspective a different relationship to things than how most of us have been conditioned how Most of us have been patterned. It doesn't work. (coughs) It doesn't work um, to ignore or try to suppress any of our difficult emotions that come up. Because what happens? Well, they just reappear. If we really put a tight lid, try to stuff, as we say, stuff an emotional state, it actually blocks and darkens our sensitivities. It deadens our sensitivities, not just darkens them. And it keeps the possibility of purification, the possibility of transformation at bay. And of course, it's certainly not about blindly acting out and blindly believing all of the afflictive emotions that show up. This is kind of like watering and fertilizing the seeds of our habit patterns. And again, repeating a bit, something very important to remember is that our practice is not about purposefully dredging up and miring in analytically with all of the historical and projected stories that inspire emotional states. The strong energies of fear and anger can really color our entire experience when we're caught and swept away in them. The practice, or to practice and to understand, we need to be able to come very close to our immediate experience. An intimacy of connection rooted in kindness with a very focused, concentrated and mindful attention. With a mindfulness-based mindfulness practice, this intimacy is in, in the spirit of investigation, in the spirit of exploration, without pushing away or pulling away from experience, or not desiring experience to be different. For those of you that are specifically practicing concentration, Anapanasati and Metta, these same principles apply though the investigation may not necessarily be as extensive as it can be in a mindfulness-based Vipassana practice, unless an unwholesome state blows up into becoming very pervasive and very sticky. So now I'd like to take a, a bit of a look at anger. In the classical teachings, Anger is likened to a pond that's on on top of a boiling spring. When we're angry, we can't see very far. We can't see clearly. And anger is a very strong, powerful energy. So from this perspective, it actually can be quite seductive. A while ago, I knew someone whose energy was fueled primarily with anger. She was very attached and very identified with her anger, and in fact spoke about really liking her anger. She said that she felt very strong and very powerful in the anger. But unfortunately, she was not a happy person. She was kind of like a porcupine. People would begin to get close to her, and they would feel the sharp needles, the sharp sting of her anger, and they would move away. Consequently, she was quite a lonely person and yet so identified in her mind as an angry person and so afraid that she would lose her self, meaning lose her energy and her power, lose the fuel for her life if she let go of her anger. It takes a tremendous honesty and humility to really, truly practice. And sometimes it takes a lot of mindfulness and metta energy directed towards ourself to open to and to be with and to really clearly see things as they are. Mindfulness and metta don't cover over anger or fear or jealousy or irritation. Practice changes our mind and is about making the choice to transform our heart, transform our mind. It actually opens the heart and gives us the strength to not turn away, to not distract ourselves, to not pretend anything, but to just stay still, be here, be present in relationship (coughs) with what is, with our practice, We've chosen to see and to experience things just as they are, with a very natural strength that comes from the expanding capacity of our heart and mind. In the mid-1990s, over a consecutive two-year period, I taught in Poland. And the first year was for two months. And then the second year was for one month. And there was one student who stayed for the whole two months uh, of practice the first year. He was a man in his early 40s, and he was a very successful big city businessman from Warsaw who had very diligently practiced Zen and Karate and Aikido for about 10 years prior to coming to the two-month Vipassana Metta retreat that I was offering in Poland. He'd grown up in a home environment with a very ill-tempered and angry father and uncle, living, as he said, with his heart burning with fear much of the time throughout his childhood, with this fear still present to some degree in his adult life. But much more obvious to him was the fact that he'd learned and taken on the habits, the thoughts, and the words and the actions of this same ill-temper. And he described himself to me as a man of heavy emotions, which in fact was becoming more and more uncomfortable as his Buddhist practice developed and deepened. Unlike his father and his uncle, he had begun to see himself more and more clearly through his martial arts practices and his interest in Buddhism and his practice of meditation. For the full year following the two-month retreat in Prajeka Poland, this man diligently and mindfully practiced metta with one phrase, May I accept myself fully, unconditionally, just as I am in this world present moment and he said that as the year progressed he recognized his habituated ill temper beginning to arise sooner and sooner and sooner in its process consequently he was able to let it go more and more often and more quickly he returned to Prajeka for the month of retreat uh, f- the following year as a much changed and much happier man. What's often overlooked is the disastrous effects of anger, the harm that anger does to oneself. The first person hurt is always the one who's angry. An angry mind is a suffering mind. An angry mind is agitated, it's tight, it's narrow, it's constricted. The quality of awareness changes. Clear seeing and perspective vanish. One often feels restless and driven. Nothing satisfying. Sleep can be very difficult. The body's tense. With anger, the sense of self looms very large. And so does the sense of the other. One of the primary reasons that anger is so painful is that it very quickly creates a sharp separation between self and other. It's kind of as though a line has been drawn that isn't to be passed, with each angry moment deepening the imprint of anger in the mind stream something that's both amazing and simple and difficult to see is that irritation anger fear rage hate develop from a moment momentary unpleasant feeling that went unnoticed that went that that was not met with a mindful attention again pointing to the totally conditional nature of afflictive states of mind and the importance in our practice of seeing the momentary, unpleasant, or pleasant feeling tone that shows up in relationship to experience. The point at which we become aware of anger or any other afflictive mind state depends on the quality, the focused strength and depth of our focused, our concentrated, mindful attention. So how can we work with anger through our practice? Just like any emotional state of mind, anger is not solid. It's made up of many, many different components. Stories, thoughts, spinning out. A specific mood of the mind, an emotional tone. And various changing bodily sensations. With all of this coming and going, arising and passing. As soon as you see the thoughts that are spinning out the stories of anger, fear, self-judgment, or sadness, doubt, greed clinging, expectation, disappointment, it's actually very helpful to let them go. Just let them drop away. Give them no mind, as I like to call it. These thoughts aren't aren't only the expression of anger. They're also feeding the anger. They're kind of like fertilizer for the angry mind. So let the stories go and bring the attention directly into the sensations of the body, feeling the emotion itself, directly, in itself, without the story. So what are you feeling? Well, maybe you're feeling height, or uh, excuse me, heat. maybe tightness, pressure, heaviness, contraction, some vibration. And where is it? Where is it in the body? And very, very important, how is it changing? How is it changing? And notice the mind. Meaning, at this point, notice what your relationship is to these sensations in the body. Is there resistance? Which would need more contraction. Really give this your best attention. Feel it, see it, know it. Is their interest grounded in kindness? Grounded in acceptance of the sensations in your body? Take a look. And in the service of acceptance, kindness, and patience. If the emotion is too strong to sit with, don't force yourself to sit with it. Do some walking meditation. And you might even walk a, a bit faster than you usually do. Bring your attention into the, directly into the body and with the breath as what when you're walking. Or you might open up to the natural world outside. Taking in the trees in conjunction with the wide open spaciousness of the sky. Opening to the smells, the sounds, the warmth of the sun, the air touching the skin, the coolness of the air maybe touching the skin. Notice the birds, maybe chipmunks, maybe even rabbits, the small creatures of the world. Don't indulge thinking. Stay mindful in the present moment, in the physical world, and in the body, and also in the breath. In those moments of a really connected, present moment attention, afflictive emotion disappears. It is in present. The ease, there's an ease in the sense of well-being that arises out of a completely connected, present moment attention is really amazing. Beyond compare in a very quietly, wonderful way. Resting in the natural world can be both an immediate experience and a clear mirror of ease for us. Remember the mountain climber Gerilyn's relationship to fear. And from Nisargadatta Maharaj, great Indian teacher who often taught in dialogue with his students. So his students said to him, what's the real cause of suffering? And Nisargadatta responded, self-identification with the limited. Sensations as such, however strong, do not cause suffering. It's the mind bewildered by wrong ideas, addicted to thinking, I am this, I am that, that fears loss and craves gain and suffers when frustrated. The truth of the matter is that the energy that's present in strong emotional states, that energy doesn't disappear. It isn't lost in the purification and the uh, wisdom that our practice affords us. We don't lose the energy. In clear seeing that's free of ego interest, with a non-self-centered presence that isn't exclusively or predominantly in pursuit of uh, our own personal advantages, maybe such as a power, maybe control, or pleasure or status or prestige or maybe recognition with a clear non-self absorbed concentrated and mindful attention based in the heart of kindness therein lies the possibility of the relinquishment and the transformation of the strong energies of fear anger, greed attachment doubt sadness, etc. So now I'd like to spend just a bit of time exploring the wanting mind, states of strong desire and greed and clinging and attachment. Classically, unwholesome desire, clinging, attachment, (coughs) Hanha, in Pali is the word, in the mind, is likened to a pond that's been filled with dye. We aren't able to see the bottom. Our vision is obscured. When our heart, our mind, is clouded, when we're caught in the energies of greed and attachment, we're blinded by desire. A blatant and current example of this with greed really being the root of the current worldwide environmental crisis. People blindly acting out of enormous greed, causing enormous personal and global suffering. This is rooted in the desire that comes out of misunderstanding. The desires we project into the future, for instance, hoping and dreaming and fantasizing, about what we think we need to get and how we think things need to be in order for us to be contented, to be at ease in life. The thoughts that the satisfaction of a particular desire will give us something that, in fact, it won't. And, in fact, it really can't. And there are healthy, worthy Wholesome desires. All desires, not a bad thing. So, for instance, it's in part what got you here on retreat—a wholesome desire. In light of our exploration this evening, I'd like to share a prayer with you. It's a—I was told it was a personal practice uh, of Mother Teresa's. Uh, um, an honest saint. Somebody sent this to me in the mail telling me it was her practice. And it starts off, Deliver Me, O Jesus, and I'm going to change it to Deliver Me, O Dhamma. Deliver Me, O Dhamma, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, from the desire of being preferred, from the desire of being consulted, from the desire of being approved, from the desire of being popular, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, from the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, from the fear of being forgotten, from the fear of being wronged, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. Nothing left out there. (laughs) I got a phone call right after I received this and read it from a friend, a Dharma dharma friend, and I said, oh, I have to read you this. I just got this in the mail. I read it to him over the phone, and his response was, oh my God, have I got a lot to do. (laughs) So true, yes, we we do have a lot to do, but uh, I really find this uh, practice quite inspiring. Many of us can become quite attached to getting or trying to keep certain objects of our desire. <clears throat> and also expend an incredible amount of time and energy trying to hold on to, to get something back. Or we can spend an enormous amount of time and energy trying to keep some experience or someone from changing maybe here even in retreat maybe the particularly wonderful sitting that you had the other day or maybe even a sit or a particular period of practice that you had on your last retreat or five years ago on retreat it's the contraction, it's the clinging the attachment and the self-centeredness the identification around desire that is the problem I think we can safely say that attachment is the biggest problem in the world. So a really good question you might ask yourself once in a while is, how driven am I by my desires? So a simple, quite mundane, personal example. Some years ago I was teaching at a retreat center here in New Mexico that uh, has some of the most beautiful, wonderful flower gardens and I was walking along next to one of these gardens and I noticed a really sweet smell so I followed my nose and to where the smell was coming from to a particular flower and I got down really close to the flower and took in the smell as fully as I could very present an awareness of the pleasantness of the experience and then I got caught I had to go uh, and do something else but all I wanted to do was stay there and continue experiencing this sweet, sweet smell. So with that next moment uh, of clinging and not not really being willing, willing at all to let go and just simply go on, the pleasantness of the experience of the previous moment was gone. I was experiencing kind of a tightness in my body and a kind of burning irritation in the heart and the mind. But I, I got up, and I walked away to do what needed to be done next. But there was still a kind of clinging to the sweet smell, even though it was totally gone from my field of experience at that point. I was attached at that point then to the memory of it, wanting it back, planning when I could get back to that garden later in the day, and imagining how nice it would be later when i finally got back there what just a moment ago was a moment of which was a moment of pleasantness was no longer pleasant but rather a moment of being caught in the grip of my clinging mind and it was a moment of suffering and it happens so quickly There's a story that the Dalai Lama tells about himself uh, about, uh, at some point, being taken uh, window shopping um, in some big city. I think it may have been London, I'm not sure if I'm remembering right, but I think it may have been London to an area where there are lots of small shops uh, that sell uh, all kinds of small mechanical parts and systems, mechanical systems. And his friend took him there because he knew that the Dalai Lama was quite interested uh, in and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things. And the Dalai Lama said that at first he he looked in all the shop windows and at first he was just with an open curiosity and and interest. And then he said all of a sudden he realized that he wanted everything. (laughs) He said he wanted all of it, even though... He said, I didn't even know what any of it was for. I just wanted it all. (laughs) To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, two of the most essential qualities of mind and heart that are required of us are honesty and humility. Self-deception, self-delusion and clear sensing and seeing and knowing are mutually incompatible. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who was a very profound and powerful teacher in her own right, said this about humility. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are to see my inner beings as it, my inner being as it is good or bad to observe it as it is without defending it without justifying it without interpreting or judging it without taking pride in it and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness humility enables you to learn keeps you pliable perhaps To the last breath, I hope, she said. As we begin to sense and see and know clinging and greed, we find that we're experiencing a kind of of tension, stress, Burning, a burning desire. For many people, there's often some confusion, some delusion that this state of desire, this yearning, this attachment feels good. And it's even sometimes confused with love until we begin to see it and know it really clearly. The Buddha talked about everything burning, the eye is burning. Eye consciousness is burning. The ear is burning. Ear consciousness is burning. And he goes on through each of the six sense doors this way. And then he says, burning of what? Burning of desire. Burning of hatred, jealousy, fear. Burning with the fire of confusion. Some years ago I found a recipe in a very old um, inquiring mind, years ago. At risk of giving you a recipe that you already have and maybe cook up sometimes, uh, I'd like to share this one with you. It's called A Recipe for Unhappiness. The ingredients. One cup of what is. One cup of inability to accept what is. Three tablespoons of complaints. One teaspoon of light whining a quarter pound of alternate scenario, preferably unattainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection and four sprigs of envy minced for garnish. And this is what you do with it. In a large bowl whisk together what is with an equal amount of inability to accept what is. Stir in complaints, and let sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to over season or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternate scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate leaves from stems. Then try to reattach leaves in the exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in a few food processor using on and off turns. When mixture is pureed, add it to what is an inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. Garnished with, garnish with minced envy and serve immediately. Uh, And a similar teaching, but really differently expressed. This comes from Nanxin, chinese sage Nanxin. By not quite accepting, because they do not please us, things that are so, we spend our entire lives making meaningless gestures somewhere next door to reality. the Buddha offers us another recipe. The recipe of cultivating a strong and clear mindfulness, concentration, and investigation rooted in kindness that meets the experience of the moment and sees it clearly just as it is. We can actually learn to experience the extremes and the subtleties of afflictive emotions without getting caught up and swept away and overcome by them. It's as though we learn to see them so clearly that we see through them. And we see their nature. Just like we see through the colors of a rainbow. One way, maybe not your usual way, that you might consider emotional states in relationship to your practice is that they're the nourishing mud in which the lotuses of compassion and generosity, sensitivity, and wisdom can take root and blossom. And this is from the Vimalakirti Sutra, from the Mahayana teachings. Flowers like the blue lotuses, the red lotuses, and the white lotuses do not grow on dry ground in the wilderness, but grow in the swamps and mud banks just so the buddha qualities grow in those living beings who are like swamps and mud banks of passions and for me when i first discovered this teaching years ago it was really an acknowledgement that as human beings we experience many strong and difficult emotions the mud banks of passions it's not that something's gone wrong and so not to pretend to ourselves or pretend to others that we don't feel these things. This is our human experience. This is what we have to work with. This is part of our practice. The suffering, the anguish and the confusion that's felt in relationship to identification with afflictive emotions with what are sometimes called the poisons of self-centered existence, are for many people a very potent aspect of the process of awakening, with these poisons being transformed through practice into what are sometimes called nectars or Buddha wisdoms, afflictive emotions, or as the Buddha very graphically called them, cankers are transformed into purified energies. When the thread of self is pulled out, strong emotional states can be digested into wisdom. So for just a moment now, looking at a few of these emotional states and their transformative possibilities. Anger without the self. No self-grasping. Transforms into mirror-like wisdom. The heart, the mind, reflecting clearly. And it's from this that appropriate action springs. Wanting strong desire without the self-centered quality, without self-referencing, without self-grasping, transforms into the wisdom of a clear discriminating awareness sadness without self with no self grasping has the possibility of digesting, of transforming into the heart of metta and great compassion fear without self is is digested into the great strong heart of metta compassion and equanimity bringing us the capacity to connect without fear, without judgment. In the recipe that we've inherited from the Buddha, we learn to let go, we learn to relinquish what causes the burning. And in this letting go, we sometimes, which is sometimes described, uh, we, excuse me, in the letting go we find what is sometimes described as the place of coolness. A place of coolness and luminosity in our heart and in our mind. The place of freedom from the burning. The end of suffering. And then, what is seen is just the seen. What is heard is just the heard. And what is felt is just the felt. What is known is just the known. Nothing added or needing to be added and nothing taken away or needing to be taken away. About nineteen years ago I took my mother in to live with me at my home here in Taos, which turned out to be the last 16 months of her life. And one early morning at the age of 92, she died in her bed in that house, in the same house I live in now. Within a short time after her death, as I was uh, sitting by her body in her bed, uh, and very, very closely uh, and attentively with her body in the bedroom, I very clearly saw all of the tension the accumulated tightness of anxiety and fear and irritation and clinging. I saw all of this just dissolve from her face with a transformation in my mother's face into this exquisite face of peace and ease. This experience was really very powerful for me, a very powerful teaching and an inspiration for me towards deepening my practice right now with a strong sense of why wait until death for this peace and ease our continuing diligent practice right here in this retreat and in our daily lives is bound to render us more patient forgiving, generous inclusive with humor, with goodwill kindness compassion and wisdom and with more time and energy available to live to our heart's content in closing the talk with a poem called Hokusai Says by Roger Keyes. Hokusai was a very famous Japanese painter. Some of you may know of him. And this particular painting that um, this poem was inspired by is a huge painting of a huge wave. It's his most famous painting. It's a huge wave that's starting to lap over. And the lap over of the wave looks like fingers reaching down. And inside, underneath the wave, is a very small boat with a bunch of people in it. Hokusai says, look carefully. He says, pay attention, notice. He says, keep looking, stay curious. He says, there's no end to seeing. He says, look forward to getting old. He says, keep changing, you just get more who you really are. He says, get stuck, accept it, repeat yourself as long as it's interesting. He says, keep doing what you love. He says, keep praying. He says, every one of us is a child. He says, every one of us is ancient. He says, every one of us has a body. He says, every one of us is frightened. He says, every one of us has to find a way to live with fear. He says, Things, everything is alive. Shells, building, people, fish, mountains, trees, wood is alive, water is alive. Everything has its own life. Everything lives inside us. He says, live with the world inside you. He says, it doesn't matter if you draw or write books. It doesn't matter if you saw wood or catch fish. It doesn't matter if you sit at home and stare at the ants on your veranda or the shadows of the trees and the grasses in your garden." It matters that you care. It matters that you feel. It matters that you notice. It matters that life lives through you. Contentment is life living through you. Joy is life living through you. Satisfaction and strength are life living through you. Peace is life living through you. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Look. Feel. Let life take you by the hand. Let life live through you. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening.